Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm super pumped you're joining us today to have Dr. John Schneider. We're talking about his book on the Darwinian problem of evil and looking at animal suffering. Uh, so John, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, I'm super pumped for this conversation. And in case you don't know who John is, he wrote a book on animal suffering and the Darwinian problem of evil. So we're going to be talking about that book today and different theodicies to try to explain what's going on here with regards to the problem of evil and specifically animal suffering. But before you get into that, John, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Well, um, I've had kind of a long and varied career, mostly in academics. So I've spent the last... Uh, well, I spent about 40 years teaching theology, um, five years at Westmont College in California. Some of you will know about Westmont. And then I, uh, I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I taught at Calvin College, now Calvin University, uh, for 27 years, 28 years, and uh, decided to retire. Uh, I kind of retired into a fellowship position at Notre Dame at the Center for Philosophy of Religion there. And they funded uh, me for a year um, to do research that eventually grew into this book that we're talking about today. Um, yeah. I recently moved from Michigan to Nebraska. So uh, even as we talk, I'm sitting in a very small northeast Nebraska town called Wayne. And uh, so it's a good thing you have remote uh, technology because it would be a little hard for us to get together, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be Northwest Nebraska is a little ways out from where I'm in, in Southwest yeah. Virginia right now. So praise the Lord for that. Yeah. Um, so we're going to dive into this, John. So let's talk about like, what is the Darwinian problem of evil and like, why should we care about it? Well, it, to put it really simply, if you think that um, species were created and designed by means of evolution, uh, as uh, initiate a theory initiated by Darwin and then uh, has evolved over time, uh, it, it looks like that's a, a method of creation or designing species, bringing about species, that... Uh, while it, it's very successful, it's been, well, brought us about, according to the uh, theory, it brought complex life about and all kinds of good things about. But along with it, one of the main byproducts of it has been uh, a magnitude of suffering that is really kind of hard to uh, imagine, especially if we think about it in terms of the deep time, planetary time that geologists uh, have revealed, uh, really about the last two and a half centuries, Geologists, modern geologists, have made us aware that the Earth is vastly older than anyone uh, imagined. But along with that discovery came uh, a secondary discovery of life forms that had existed, entire species, uh, really entire ecologies. Some um, have referred to them as worlds, entire worlds of plants and animals and, uh, and uh, biomes have come and gone so that at the end, uh, as we speak, uh, biologists tell us that 99.9% of all species that ever existed are gone. Um, and an awful lot of them without any 
trace of a genetic legacy. So you can't even argue that, say, the reason for their existence was to contribute to a um, progeny or to uh, descendants. This looks to a lot of people, especially atheistic people, as so wasteful, inefficient, and if you think animals are capable of actual suffering in a moral way, um, cruel. And so it, it becomes very hard for some people to believe that uh, an all-powerful and all-wise and morally perfect God would create nature this way and design the conditions of existence for animals in that fashion. And, you know, some people go further and they'll, they'll, they'll see uh, what we're talking about here, this Darwinian problem, the whole configuration of animal suffering that's been unveiled as uh, almost proof positive that there is no such God. So uh, the pro this is a problem of evil that impinges on the larger discussion about uh, God and evil and evidence for and against belief in uh, theistic God. And in this case, I'm, I'm more concerned with a distinctly Christian God. Yeah, that's super helpful. That's just part of the problem. And, you know, when, we can go on to talk about discoveries in modern biology uh, involving um, the unveiling of an entire world of, well, I call them micro monsters, viruses, uh, microbial diseases, uh, various parasites, uh, organisms whose at least most obvious role in nature is to inflict uh, immense harm, disease and death, um, intense suffering on innocent creatures. And so there's, you know, at best on its surface or on its face, uh, a real problem there in, in uh, seeing it as plausible that the Christian God would have designed things that way. Um, so obviously, if uh, as a Christian, you want to affirm Darwinian evolution, that God, in fact, did create that way, then uh, it falls on you to give some kind of explanation as to how that's plausible, how, how those two things could be reconciled. The picture of God on the one hand, and then this configuration of animal suffering on the other. And that's, that's apart from the human suffering that many of these things have caused since human beings arrived in the uh, picture on the stage of time. And so that, that's, that's a, th those are two aspects of the problem. And I, in the book, I go into it even more deeply because uh, one of my concerns in the book, uh, well, one of my reasons for writing the book is I, I think some um, evolutionary creationists, as they often call themselves, that is, people who believe God created the world but did so by means of Darwinian evolution, are somewhat downplaying uh, the complexity and seriousness of the problem. Uh, maybe treating it a, a little too casually as not that big a problem. And uh, that that is something I want to avoid. I, I want to stress that in the interest of honesty, integrity, credibility, that Christian thinkers should uh, face this problem full on. And that includes an aesthetic aspect, as you looked at the book and you know that is a part of the problem, I call attention to something that's been uh, ignored, really, or at least explicitly um, missing from the conversation, and that's the aspect of horror. And you know, some of the things that we find in nature better fit 
philosophical descriptions of that genre than than the merely tragic one or unpleasant one. And I give examples in the book of little creatures that do terrible, terrible things to animals. And you, uh, you know, those <laughs> those would make great horror films. In <laughs> fact, a lot of the creatures uh, that that we've discovered uh, resemble some of the. The, the creatures that we find in horror films. So it, it, it goes beyond just uh, ordinary evil into something extraordinary. So once, once my, my view is that once um, one grasps the, the multi-layered nature of the problem and its atheistic force, that it's, um, it's really very difficult to downplay it. And of course, very, very difficult to explain uh, all this um, very well. And uh, my sense was that while people have made very heroic efforts to do so, uh, in my judgment at least, none of the available explanations uh, is good enough to really obviate the need for further search, for searching for a, a better alternative if we can find one. And that was my goal in writing the book, is to find an approach to this that would improve the position of Christians in this uh, conversation uh, beyond what had already been achieved by uh, people who've written on it. Mm, that's super helpful. So thanks, John. I do want to like emphasize this idea that it's very important for Christian to have some sort of like account for like explain this phenomena. I remember being at a conference and this question was brought up and it was a question of like animal suffering over millions of years. And then the person talking kind of was just pointed to like a C.S. Lewis thing where it's like, um, you can't have evil without good and you can't have good without God. And that was how you answered the problem of animal suffering. I remember listening to that and I'm like, that seems lacking. Like, even if that's true, we still need to have some sort of account for um, why there is animal suffering. And it seems like to me, like, even if you're going to hold it, like, not necessarily like evolution, but even like progressive creation or intelligent design or something, you still have these millions of years of animal suffering that you have to do with. Um, the only people that may claim they can fully get off the hook is like a young earth creationist, um, which may have their own problems that we'll talk about in a sec. So let's just dive into that, John, to start things off. So some people might point to like saying the fall and the fall can fully explain animal suffering. So can you talk a little bit about that idea and why you and how you critique it and why you think it ultimately falls short? Well, um, it's, of course, an ancient explanation going back into, uh, you know, earliest Christianity, at least some, and it's important to know not all Christians in the historic Christian tradition thought that the, the fall of Adam and Eve um, explained the origin of evil. Uh, even uh, theologians like Augustine, who, who believed there was a fall, also believed that it, it didn't really explain uh, why there was so much um, uh, evil and unpleasantness in nature. And so he developed a different theory about why uh, that those kinds of so-called natural evils might exist, poisonous spiders. And he gives a whole list of uh, things in nature that, that aren't very well explained uh, by a human fall. And one of the problems that, uh, that I underscore is, uh, well, there's a moral impropriety. If you really think about it, why would it, it, it makes some sense, at least, that God would punish or allow the consequences of human sin to fall upon human beings, you know, so that you would have a, the propriety would be that a human being sins and human beings suffer. 
there are problems with that too because a lot of people have suffered who didn't <laughs> take part in that original sin so that's a whole other topic but but that problem that kind of um, uh, idea or picture that god would punish descendants or something that ancestors did is uh, really magnified by the, the notion that that god punished say you know billions of uh, animals uh, throughout planetary time because of a an act of disobedience um that a human being did so why why in the world would god punish animals for something that humans did that that's one problem there are other problems um even if if you believe in a fall that there was an original pair that's problematic too as i'm sure you know because in evolutionary theory that's quite disputable but um uh church fathers like Irenaeus said well yeah there was a fall but it doesn't explain why there was a fall and that's something i emphasize in the book that okay so uh adam and eve did this horrible thing so horrible that god found it fitting to bring ruin upon not just humanity but the entire world of nature animals and so on um world ruinous fall but what conditions would have made that possible you know the the the, the, the situation that god set up in the beginning had to be tremendously fragile in other words it had to be breakable in all those ways and so that just drives the question more into a, a, a deeper layer doesn't it um, you know so maybe you say well the devil uh satan uh broke in and caused all this and uh, and brought about all this ruin but then you 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 just push that question i raised back one more step you know what what uh, what accounts for the fragility uh such that god would al allow a being not just to be free uh to obey or not but uh, to have that kind of explosive, ruinous uh, potential in the event of disobedience. And then, of course, some, you know, Irenaeus said that, and uh, Origen and others, I'm talking about very ancient church fathers, who said that, that if God is omniscient, he surely knew in the beginning all of this was going to happen anyway. And so there, there are a lot of problems involved in trying to use the fall as a a the not just as an account of beginnings but as a theodicy as an actual explanation a god justifying explanation for the evils that uh, one is trying to explain mm. so yeah it's very vulnerable to criticism and in my opinion uh, more, more than that i think if you really analyze it in the way i do in the book i think the appeal to the fall to explain animal suffering in nature is a, a pretty abject failure Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that, John. And I think it's helpful thinking about, so um, look at this dialect, like say that like someone's going to say that like, well, the choice of Adam and Eve is the response of like all animal suffering. Well, you still have the question of like, well, God surely knew that like Adam and Eve are going to fall. Right. Um, and so you could say the similar thing if you attribute it to like maybe like demonic powers or things like that, which is why, um, yeah, right. I really appreciate that. And I think that's a good. And God would have known they were, these demonic beings were going to fall too. And then you know, I thought about this one night, you know, I was reading C.S. Lewis and some pretty important thinkers have wanted to blame Satan for the fall of nature. They're a little careful in the way they state that, but they, they entertain this possibility. But I think, you know, isn't that a pretty monstrous thing to ascribe to God, that God would take this being, namely Satan, who who, who 
makes Freddy Krueger, you know, horror films almost look like an innocent by comparison. You're talking about some being, a superhuman being that wants to destroy, ruin uh, the world in all the ways that, you know, we can look around and see that it's ruined <clears throat> um, evils of all kinds. It, it, it's at least difficult to imagine God putting a being like that in a, a position, um, you know, um, where that the fate of virtually everyone, human and non-human beings who would ever live would be in the at the mercy of a decision such a um, monster would make. And, and again, like you suggest, God, I, mean, I think God surely would have known or at least foreseen or sensed that this could. And even if, if you want to say God didn't know it because you want to preserve the freedom of that um, creature uh, that turns into such a mon monster, uh, you would have to be pretty pretty uh, brave to be risking uh, the lives of so many creatures on a bet, a sort of gamble that, well, maybe this being would get it right. Uh, maybe it's a 50-50 chance. But I, I don't even, I don't think that works very well. I, it seems to me that, that the chances of um, free uh, beings falling at some point are greater than that, probably close to certain. And that, that even, even if God didn't know in the strict sense, uh, the future in some detail, um, that God would have been smart enough not to, not to, uh, set things up in that way. So, so I guess, uh, so what do I think? I think that there is some sense in which God, um, knew, uh, the fall would happen and that God planned, um, on a history of redemption, you know, culminating in Christ and then, all the things that Christ has done in response to the fall. So um, the technical word from my view is super lapsarianism. It's a big word, but it, it basically just means that God planned redemption in Christ before the fall. God wasn't surprised by the fall. It, um, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is not plan B. You know, that's something God uh, came up with. Oh, gosh, Adam and Eve have sinned now. I've got to do something different. Um, you know, my sense of it is anyway that God knew all along that these measures he would take in Christ, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, all of it um, were part of the plan from the beginning. Blessed is the lamb who was slain from the beginning of the world. I take the verses like that pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of precedent for my thinking there in the Christian tradition as well. Yeah, that's super helpful. So thanks, John. Um, so we explored this idea of like saying that the fall can account for an explanation of animal suffering. So now I'd love to talk about like the aesthetic theodicy. It's something you yeah. interact with a lot. So it's this idea of like maybe there's some sort of like great beauty that comes from maybe like a process of like a lot of animal suffering. So can right. you talk about like what this is and like can it answer the problem of animal suffering? The um, Well, to take a step back, um, one of the one of the things that defenders of evolutionary creationism underline is that the suffering of animals if you look at it in a certain way is not just bad it's tragic um 
tragedy, of course, has a long history in the discussion of aesthetics, uh, going back to Aristotle, especially, who pointed out the value of tragedy. Um, and that's manifested in tragic uh, plays that uh, were being written by the Greeks. And, you know, the, the, the tragedy, there's a beauty in tragedy that uh, Aristotle writes about and others have written about and uh, a nobility in it. Uh, uh, a variety of good things come from tragedy, uh, tragic goods. And so some writers have argued that the, the lives of animals, especially if we think of predation, you know, where one animal takes the life of another in order to live, uh, you can turn that around and say the other animal gives its life sacrificially uh, to the other animal so that it might live. There's, there's a kind of um, virtue in that and a, a kind of beauty. Um, why do people drive hundreds of miles to witness an act of predation? You know, a wolf chasing down. There, there is a, a terrible painfulness and badness about predation in, in some of those cases anyway. Not all of them. I would say some are pretty, just hor pretty much just horrible. You know, parasites and various other creatures that just tear into uh, higher animals. But there is, there are many, many examples of, of um, life and death in the animal world that most of us would agree are quite beautiful in their own way, in a tragic way, not in a cheerful way, but in a sublimely tragic way. And so if you, if you think that's a good thing uh, that goes together with the bad thing, then the question becomes, does it outweigh uh, the bad? You know, the death, the pain, the suffering that is involved in this beautiful thing. And I, I don't think it does, uh, but I think it somewhat counteracts it. You know, what we what we really need is a view. Well, let me say that uh, tragic goods are among the goods that ev evolution creates or helps to create. So if we wonder why would God why would God use evolution as a means of creating species? Well, maybe one. Uh, part of the answer is that God wanted a lot of tragic beauty. Now that that doesn't that I don't think you can rule that out right away, at least on Christian grounds, because I mean look at look at how God chose to act in Christ. That is a truly tragic um, story, the passion of Jesus, and many people have written about the. the it's a terrible, horrible story, but there's a beauty. Uh, dignity and nobility, um, um, a greatness, uh, an aesthetic greatness about that story. It's, we see it in art, we see it in drama, we see it in literature. Um, so it isn't a, it isn't really a stretch to think that the same God who acted in those ways with the sacrificial lamb known as Christ would do something uh, comparable in nature. You know, so and I'm not the only writer who has compared the, the, the cross, the narrative of the cross, to the story of uh, species. Some people have referred to the cruciform, the cross-like uh, character of the uh, story, the story of life. Uh, so it, the, this is a way of looking at it. And, he, and some argue, uh, John Hout, very, very important thinker in this uh, regard, he, he seems to think that the, uh, the beauty that kind of beauty does outweigh and justify God in uh, creating uh, by Darwinian means, despite the suffering. 
Um, you know, from the book, I, 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 I agree with a lot of that. I think he's partly right, but I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard to argue in the end that, that this kind of tragic beauty and all the other goods that we can uh, list that Darwinian evolution helps to create, um, outweigh the magnitude of suffering that we're, uh, we're talking about. So we need some, I think we need a better way uh, than that to, uh, it would be good anyway, if we, we had a better way than that to think about to God creating by Darwinian means. Yeah, that's super helpful. Thanks, John. And I think I really like your position on this. And I find a lot of sympathies where we can say like, there is something to the idea that there is this like aesthetic beauty in a process of like, um, the death and life of animals and things like right. this, where there's something there, but it can't fully account like we need something further. And the something further you look at a little more in your book is the book of Job when thinking about the that's problem right. of animal suffering. So can right. you talk a little bit about the book of Job and how it helps you think with the problem of animal suffering? Well, one thing that is missing or largely missing in these highly philosophical and theological discussions of God and evil, including uh, the evil of animal suffering in nature, is uh, canonical, biblical resources. Um, I think it's because people haven't really uh, seen or uh, understood the contributions that these sources could make to that discussion. You know, initially it would seem that, that, you know, these are purely religious sources, they're ancient. You know, how could they really be uh, strongly relevant to and helpful uh, to our attempts to resolve such complex questions? But I, you know, I really got the idea of turning to uh, biblical sources from a philosopher named Marilyn McCord Adams. And she wrote a book about um, what she called horrendous evils and human suffering. She didn't write about animal suffering. But one of her strong proposals was that biblical sources are not playing a big enough role in Christian discussions. It's kind of ironic because Christians, uh, you know, stand on canonical resources. But there seemed, there seemed to be a, a sort of, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't call it an attitude or dismissive or anything like that, but just a sense that the Bible, this ancient book, maybe doesn't have a whole lot to contribute to this extremely modern discussion, modern understood in Darwinian terms. What does Job know about uh, Darwinian evils? It seems like a, a pretty big chasm to cross, right? But I, I um, in the book, I argue that Job is remarkably relevant to this problem. And in a lot of ways, you know, the pro probably one of the main ways is, in, you know, this is controversial. And it would be if you had experts on Job come in, they, they would argue about it and all that. But I mean, my main proposal is that one of the what happened to Job in the, the book is that evils beset him. He was afflicted by evils that didn't conform to ordinary ethical or moral explanations. I mean, the reader is clued in right away that Job was righteous. You know, he had done no wrong in the eyes of God. And so in the theology that existed then, very strong, it's known as Deuteronomic theology. It's the ancient moral teaching of Israel prior to their exile in Babylon. 
um, they unquestionably, uh, unquestioningly assume that if a person was righteous, really righteous in God's eyes, that person would not suffer moral disorder. You know, things, the things that happened to Job were supposed to happen to wicked people. And to make a long story short, a, a lot of really righteous and innocent people suffered in the Babylonian exile. And the sad thing was that a lot of really not very righteous, even wicked, wealthy people got off the hook, right? Bribed their way out of slavery and all the other uh, sufferings that uh, ordinary or poor people um, had to endure. So when Israel got back uh, into Palestine, from you know years working as slaves in Babylon, they had this question: Why do the righteous suffer? It seemed to falsify their entire moral picture of God, the world, and evils. And so, Job is not just an in my, and this isn't just my opinion. An awful lot of scholars agree with this statement that Job is not just an accidental literary character. He, he's an emblem. He, he represents a type of uh, person who existed in Israel at that time, that post-exilic time, and had that question. And so Job suffers in a typological way, in a way that was typical of many, many, many Israelites. And they wondered, since they didn't deserve this, right? According to their own teachings, they didn't deserve any such thing. In fact, they deserved the opposite. Um, what's going on? And of course, like any human being, they would wonder if their faith was in vain. What about this promise that God had made that he was building a messianic kingdom on earth, uh, one in which peace, prosperity, uh, justice would prevail everywhere for the righteous? This is the, the cause and effect. You know, if, if Israel is really righteous, they will enable God or help God in a way to bring this messianic realm about this this entire picture uh, seems to be falling apart and we we see it in job's complaints this should not be happening he keeps saying to his friends his friends are perfectly you know they're like the good evangelicals today they know their bible as as, as well as anyone could and if you examine their advice the advice they give to job it is absolutely biblical in the old Deuteronomic sense. But Job says it cannot, that cannot be true. Something else must be true. Something else that we don't know yet must explain what has happened to me. It isn't my sin. It isn't uh, anything God's doing to correct me. It appears to me, he says, that God is just uh, being cruel. Uh, he compares God to the wicked who trampled the uh, poor. He, he, he says things about God that his friends must have thought would have brought on lightning, you know, several lightning strikes. To, and in fact, thunder does come up at the end of Job, maybe a little humor. Uh, the friends probably thought, well, this is it. God's going to strike Job dead for the things he said. But that isn't what happened. And so we come to the speeches at the end where God, the only time in um, Hebrew history, in uh, literary history, God shows up, an author dares to have God become a character in the uh, literature. When God speaks in the other parts of the Bible, he's really speaking, right? 
the prophets. It's God speaking. The, the writer of Job creates a character. He creates God, and he brings God in to speak to Job. Now, of course, I'm taking this as poetics. I Most people like me would not take Job as a simple history book. It's a, it's a highly crafted story that's supposed to have a meaning. And what God says to Job is usually interpreted to be bullying. You know, who do you think you are, Job? You know, I'm God, and where were you when uh, I created uh, the foundations of the world? In other words, they understand the tone of those speeches to be angry, and they understand the uh, message that God is giving Job in all these pictures as a rebuke. But that makes uh, that doesn't make sense um, for a lot of reasons. One of which is at the end, God praises Job. He says, "Job has spoken truly." The friends have spoken so falsely that he tells Job to pray for them. <laughs> Go sacrifice for them, pray for them. They need forgiveness. And all they've done is quote scripture to Job. And so there's quite an irony there. So you go back and you say, well, if Job spoke truly, how do we read the speeches? And there's a lot, you get a lot of help here from several writers. But what, uh, what I argue in the book with them, you know, uh, with their help, experts on Job, is that God is giving Job images of, of, of himself, God, in relation to things that are thought to be God-forsaken. The, the imagery, it's very familiar imagery to ancient Hebrews, is the imagery of his conflict between powers of primordial chaos, beginning with Genesis itself, the deep, and the power of the creative power of God who brings order, brings cosmos, chaos versus cosmos. It's an ancient Near Eastern theme. Israel has its own version of that. And it's a magnificent poetic tradition. But in that tradition, it's always God, the warrior, slaying the great chaos monster, uh, Leviathan, Rahab, sometimes paired up as a male and female. Um, it's, a, it's a triumphal image um, that carries a promise, thematic promise, that God is really beating up on these anti-cosmic uh, realities. They have no part in God's plan. And so if you are suffering, if you're an animal or a human, if you're a human like Job, it's clear that God has rejected you. If you're an animal like the ostrich who runs around out in the wilderness screeching, you know, mindlessly, or a jackal, um, God has forsaken you. These are these animals almost symbolize desolation, and they're doomed. And they're and in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, they won't be there. And uh, I argue in a rather roundabout and complex way we don't have time to go into in detail that the speeches, the divine speeches in Job, reconstruct all of that. And instead of picturing God as beating up on these creatures, these realities, starting with the sea, which is always an enemy of God, is going to be removed. The monster Leviathan going to be cut into pieces and scattered. These animals uh, representing desolation. In these speeches, God is, it's, it's really shocking, actually, I think, to the Hebrew reader. God is intimately, caringly involved with these things uh, to the point where it's very strongly suggested that God has deliberately included them in the world. 
uh, he's made a covenant with the chaos monster. I mean, if, if uh, he's a midwife to the sea, if you're an original Hebrew reader, your eyes are bugging out by now. Your jaw is dropping. You're, you're wondering what in the world is going on here. We've never heard anything like this. And what I what I think is going on there is a new way of looking at God and these chaotic things. Um, a new thing. The, the the new thing is that God is working in and not against them to simply remove them, but working in and through them, weaving them into the tapestry of his messianic cosmos. So he's doing more than just beat up on them and destroy them like a warrior. He's in a very artistic fashion, integrating these things together uh, with the final effect that the evil will be defeated, not just removed, but defeated in a technical sense in the way that an artist will take uh, something ugly that the artist has deliberately included in the art. Uh, he, he includes it there not to make the artwork worse, or not just to balance it off with good, although that's one kind of art, but the really brilliant artists, a lot of them modern artists, but some of them ancient, will, will eventually integrate that evil, that ugliness, into a larger whole, uh, such that the whole is much greater because of the evil. And of course, you know, I, I turn to the example in the New Testament of the cross, you know, arguably the greatest evil that ever happened. God deliberately included it in his plan of redemption. And yet the overall picture of redemption that we have in the end could not be as great as it is without that uh, horrible evil. We wouldn't change it, would we? In retrospect, we wouldn't say, oh, when we have this picture of redemption, it's too bad the crucifixion is there. Let's just remove that because it's so bad. Yeah, it remains an evil, but it's an evil that's been defeated, if you understand that you're following here. Uh, it's mm -hmm. defeated by the great, the great beauty and goodness of the whole that we call reconciliation, redemption, the final consummation, the coming of the messianic kingdom to the whole world. Mm -hmm. And I go on, and in Job, in, okay, so back to Job. One of the longest sections in the divine speeches is about God and these wild animals that are supposed to be forsaken, doomed to desolation. Uh, instead, the divine speaker pictures God intimately involved in caring for them, even in the wilderness, right? He provides the lion with its prey. He, in some shocking imagery there, he provides the vultures with dead bodies on the battle of war. That's a pretty hard one to take. Hmm. Job is talking some very serious stuff here. Uh, why does this seriously terrible stuff happen? Is it is it grounds for disbelieving in God, is the modern way of putting it? Is it grounds for giving up on the messianic promise, if you're Job in, in, in Judaism? And the answer there is no, contrary to appearances, um, these things, these things do not negate the truth. They just change our way of uh, approaching the truth of God's promise. If God's working in a way we didn't expect, and it's a hard way, and it involves a lot of suffering. No one expected the Messiah to die. Um, no one expected anything uh, of the sort. In fact, one of the reasons the Christians were rejected by the majority of their own people was the cross. So these are. These are not things I take lightly. I say, oh, yeah, well, God just 
integrates them into the world and they go away. No, there's 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 a terrible price that is paid for uh, all these good things that we believe God is bringing about. But Job, Job, I argue, gives at least gives a Christian a biblical, strongly biblical reason uh, to think along these lines. Uh, they're not philosophical, this is not just philosophical lines, but they're canonical lines. And so Job lends a biblical authority uh, to thinking about this kind of aesthetic um, approach. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So thank you, John. And it's a very important part of your book. So I encourage people to check that out. It's linked down below if you want to check out the book. But my last question for you, and we're going to get a little bit of Q&A. So if you have questions, feel free to put them in the chat. Is if how does the animal afterlife play into your theodicy, John? It's the last chapter of your book. So talk a little bit about that and how it kind of puts things together in your mind. Well, this is, of course, this is controversial. And I don't claim to know in a strong sense that what I propose is true, you know, with all those caveats. I, I do think it makes sense to think that if God created something, that God would want it to endure. If God created an array of non-human beings, why would God want them to just disappear? You know, why would God want extinction to be the last word on 99.9% of the species that God created, um, if we believe God created them? Um, that doesn't make, to me, that doesn't make immediate sense. It, it, it makes more sense that God would want to preserve them. So there's an intuition there. Admittedly, it's a, it's a controversial intuition, but an intuition is, it, I guess it's, almost, it's kind of an artistic intuition. You know, artists don't, well, they don't use disappearing paint typically, unless they're trying to make some kind of weird point about the temporality of art. I mean, the, the idea that God would, uh, would include animals in the messianic realm isn't far-fetched and of course there's some suggestions of it in uh, you know the famous scene on uh, uh, um, the lord's mountain where the uh, wolf lies down with the lamb you know the animal Im imagery um so I give a I give a list of reasons why I think we should at least take very seriously the possibility, if not probability, that uh, heaven, the messianic realm, uh, will include not just human beings but non-human ones as well, and that that the victory, the defeat of evils, will not just be for humans but for uh, non-humans too. Mm. So what does this look like then for your for animals, John? In your book, you talk about, if I remember it right, the idea that not necessarily like Trent Dougherty wants to go all the way and say that they may be able to like consciously reflect on like right. their suffering and things on that. But I believe if I remember right, your view is more like they may have like recognition of like what they did in a sense, but more of a like how we like praise a dog for like being good, like something yeah. like that. Like yeah, you're, you're, exactly, on that. you're exactly right. Trent, Trent and I are, we, we're, we agree that animals will be there, you know, but where we part ways a little bit is on, you know, Trent thinks that animals will be given a human-like cognitive capacity so that they can begin making choices for or against uh, God in Christ. Whereas I, I think animals have had enough trouble already in uh, this life. <laughs> so that, that would almost be cruel to force them to make a choice like that, you know, and threaten them with eternal damnation if they refused. I, uh, 
I don't I don't find that part. Uh, Trent's book is one of the best books on this subject that's been written, probably better than mine. But that's that part of his book. I don't I don't find terribly uh, persuasive for several reasons I won't go into. But as far as my own view, I think it makes more sense to think that animals retain their their former identity as being cognitively different from humans, uh, remaining the animals that they are and always have been, and yet immortalized. You know, everything in heaven is, well, the ancient Greek fathers call it divinization. You know, the, the risen Jesus is not going to die again, and the risen Christian is not going to die again. And the risen animal is not going to die again. The risen animal is going to be transformed in some way, but not, I'm, I'm suggesting, in such a way so radical and dramatic that it, it's really no longer the same animal that it was before. And I think that cognitive change would would turn them into persons in a, a sense that would um, somewhat violate that continuity of identity. But um, what I do suggest is that that because of the tremendous sacrifice that animals have made, the tremendous role, the the unimaginable contribution that they have made, uh, not only to each other, but to humans and continue to do, that it, it makes sense to me that they would be treated in heaven in a way that is uh, analogous to the way we are taught that martyrs, martyrs, Christian martyrs would be treated. People who have made unusual sacrifices for Christ who are elevated into a, a somewhat higher position than the ordinary one, whatever that is in heaven. They, 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 they according to the traditions anyway, the martyrs receive praises constantly for what they've done, and the evils that happen to them are in that way somewhat uh, defeated, integrated into a form of life that they will enjoy forever. And so I don't, I don't see anything. Um, um, too wild uh, in the thought that that uh, that animals will enjoy the praise of the angels and uh, God and humans um, in heaven uh, as a matter of gratitude. And we know in, in the book I mentioned that we do know that that some animals at least pretty clearly recognize praise even in, on this side of the grave. You know, I've trained dogs, um, many dogs over years. And it's, it's, it's clear to me and to many trainers that praise is sometimes the most effective way to uh, get a, a, a dog to behave in the way that it should. Uh, punishment doesn't, doesn't always work as well as praise. And, you know, horses and higher animals that, that clearly seem at least to enjoy um, praise from the people working with them. And so I think that, you know, what I'm suggesting could just be a continuation of something that's already developing in the animal mind. How that works out with really small, lower species, I have no idea. Uh, will all species, mosquitoes, nasty parasites, things like that, will they, will they be in heaven too, you know, in some form? I, I, I really don't know. But if they are, it would be a very different form, I would think, than the one they have now. Um, uh, you know, and then there are other suggestions that maybe some, maybe some beings are better off gone, except in memory, and maybe they would function something like uh, the way in which some of the people you mentioned at the beginning of the interview you mentioned people thought, well, the contrast of evil 
uh, helps us to appreciate the good. Maybe some of those creatures don't have the kind of value that would require God to immortalize them. But I, 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 I really have no, no clear view on that. Yeah, well, thanks for spelling it out, John. We're going to do a little bit of Q&A. So if you have questions, feel free to ask. We'll do a couple before we wrap up here. Um, we have a question from Jonah, which said, um, what is Dr. Schneider's thoughts on the modern animal welfare movement and how has this impacted his life? Um, like, so I don't know if you have any, like how your views have been impacted thinking about like animal suffering on like these questions, John? Well, I mean, one way it's, I, I don't, I've thought for a long time, uh, even before I became aware of um animal welfare as a movement, which I, I guess you could say it is, it's a relatively recent one. Uh, I've thought for some time that it, that animal welfare should be uh, a factor in our moral thinking, in our laws, our legal systems. You know, it wasn't very long ago that uh, in the handbook that was used by all veterinarians in England and the United States, they advised against using anesthetics. They didn't use anesthetics for surgery or uh, for anything. If they, you know, if they followed that recommendation, and part of the part of the reason for that was that, that people very there's a very widespread belief that animals couldn't really suffer uh, in a way that was, was morally significant. They didn't have minds of of uh, the sort that could enable them to suffer. And I've never thought that was true. Um, so, uh, having said that, um, I've had numerous friends who are very very zealous. Uh, about animal rights and animal welfare. And, you know, maybe some of them go a little too far. I don't know. Um, I tend to resist extremes. It's just kind of my nature. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm generally very much in favor of these developments. I mean, some of the uh, factory farming, I think a lot of the stuff that goes on in factory farming is just demonstrably evil. And Christians should join others in in uh, certainly disapproving it, and if possible, uh, reforming it. Um, I'm 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 not a vegan. I I I I don't believe it's immoral to kill and eat animals. Um, always, I don't think it's inherently immoral, and um, extrinsically wrong. But it's it's something we certainly should not take for granted. I mean, an animal if an animal gives its life. Uh, we should uh, we should see that as something sacred. Um, killing plants too. I mean, it seems to me that there is a certain sense in all, all which plants have a right uh, to live out their lives. And so we're we're killing one way or the other. But mm. the, the animal welfare thing, you know, as a matter of law, I I generally think it's a very good thing. Um, and the reforms that are being called for in factory farming, I mean, we still raise veal. I mean, that, there's just some disgraceful things that are going on. And we, and I think alongside that, in parallel to, to those changes, we're learning more and more about the sophistication of animal minds. We're, we're learning things about rats and chickens um, that make it impossible for me to think that these creatures don't suffer. Uh, from certain practices that should certainly be eliminated or mitigated. If we're, if we're going to eat animals, we should certainly eliminate those practices. Mm. 
Well, thank you, John. Really appreciate your thoughts on this topic. We have one more question that we'll play out before we wrap things up here. Um, it's a question from Invoking Theism, which says, if a canonical theism is a good God-justifying reason, he made a mistake, a typo there, um, for the instantiation of Darwinian worlds, then doesn't that add to the complexity of the hypothesis of a theistic response? So I think what he's trying to get at here is if we look at um, saying that maybe God would instantiate like a world with like evolution for like the Lalan allowment of like a canonical theism would that make like theism a more complicated hypothesis um when trying to explain like the world let me just read that for a quick second here mm -hmm. um if canonical theism is a good god justifying reason okay yeah well um the, i guess it is kind of uh adding complexity to theism because you've got instead of a very simple story of god saying let there be this and let there be that and there was this and there was that i mean that's a very simple straightforward story instead of that story you've got this darwinian story yeah uh but i guess the question would be is it a kind of complexity that is so clumsy and uh incorrigible that it um it makes theism um, implausible, or is it a is it a kind of complexity that makes things more interesting? I mean, I, I tend to think that 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 uh, if properly formulated, evolutionary creationism is a more interesting story of creation than the simple young Earth type of, uh, or even old Earth form of creationism. You know, the simplicity has the advantage of being comprehensible and often easier to defend and certainly easier to explain, but it comes with its own baggage too, explanatory baggage. And mm. you guys are well aware of those, those yeah. uh, areas of problem. There is something beautiful in thinking about like the complexity of our world. Like I was even thinking about as you were talking, John, like when I was in first grade um, and we were like learning about dinosaurs and like, I was never raised up in like a younger like mindset, but I remember as a Christian being like at that in first grade being like, wait, how does that make sense of like what I read in Genesis one the other day, but then yeah. over time you come to appreciate other alternatives. And I think about the idea of dinosaurs existing for like millions of years. That just seems really cool to me. And well, obviously like we have to address the problem of like suffering, but like there's something beautiful to that. So, there is yeah. something fast. I mean, the fascination that, that dinosaurs, these ancient beasts elicit in little children mm -hmm. is a great thing. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've got two grandsons who that's all they do is play with dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just endless. They're real world monsters. And uh, that they lived so long ago and in such strange uh, times and lands is it's 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 a, it's a very fascinating thing. I'm not sure the world is better Would the world that world, you know, as we construct it and along evolutionary lines old earth lines is in any way inferior to the one in which God just creates them all at once. It's kind of a crowded clumsy world. If you think about it. <laughs> um, and of course the ecology would be a, a real problem. having humans and dinosaurs living together, but um, you know, where there's a will to explain, there's always a way, but yeah, I, I think it is, it, 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 it is um, real complexity. And I guess the essence of my work is it's not just the complexity and the awkwardness of trying to put it all together because it's hard. 
you know, I think there's a, a, a lazy streak in all of us. You know, I, I think sometimes, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but I think sometimes the real simple reading of the Bible is kind of lazy. And it's just like, man, it can't be that hard. I don't want to put that much work into it. Uh, and I kind of understand that, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the best uh, response. And we got, uh, maybe we have some work to do. And maybe one of the reasons, God, you asked me before we went on, what if you could get into God's mind, what reasons do you think God might have for using uh, such a complex means of creation as Darwin, Darwinian evolution? Uh, one suggestion that some have made is that, well, it certainly makes us think. It, it mm. is it's an amazingly sophisticated thought, inquiry, humility to some extent, that we don't know everything. Um, there are a lot of intellectual and moral goods uh, that come about from responding to these questions. And maybe that's part of the reason God uh, left us to answer them instead of just spoon feeding us and answering them uh, himself. Mm, yeah, that's really great. Um, one thing to leave you on the way out, John, with is, um, Tim had one more question, which said, um, could you give like an idea of some of the aesthetic goods that result from the evolutionary story? So is there anything you quickly want to comment on here before we wrap up? Well, there's tremendous beauty. We talked about the tragic beauty. Um, there's something very, very beautiful about uh, Darwin himself before he died. He he had a lot of doubts about God because of the suffering and things that he his science was beginning to uh, uncover. But he also said, when you, you you look back at this tapestry, this whole story, there's something magnificent, sublimely beautiful about it, too. So he, he went back and forth that way. So there is beauty there. And I, I would encourage people to read. Uh, if not my book, uh, some other people who have written about this quite eloquently, some of them Christians, some of them uh, uh, not, some of them just philosophers, people describing the beauty. I mean, nature writers. I mean, nature, uh, despite its uh, harshness, nature red in tooth and claw. That's not the only thing to say about nature. There is a tremendous uh, beauty as well. Most of us experience it when we uh, become familiar with nature. Darwinism creates a kind of a new form of both the evils in nature and the goods, including the forms of beauty. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on today. It's been so much fun, so much time, so much fun talking to you. So thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Good. Thank you very much for having me on. Take care. Yeah. And thank you everyone who tuned in and asked questions. We're so grateful for your time. We wish you the best. Always be encouraged to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you value your content, please consider our patron at patreon.com. But yeah, John, thank you so much. So much for your time. So grateful. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you everyone. God bless.